0: Okay, I don't know what you were doing when you were a teenager, and I'm not going to get into what I was doing when I was a teenager, but my guest today was very busy. She was busy organizing sex ed in her school, creating reproductive and sexual health access across her community, and challenging a United States senator to fight for abortion rights. Yeah, pretty impressive, right? The woman that I'm talking about is Deja Fox, who also is one of the youngest presidential campaign staffers in American political history. You may know her from her work with Gen Z Girl Gang, an organization dedicated to organizing young women online, or maybe for her work with Planned Parenthood. But one way or another, Deja is creating a new path for women who have come of age in the era of social media. So when I was reading up on you, I loved how many times I heard you describe yourself as a future president of the United States. I love that. Do you still feel that you are a potential future president of the United States?
1: Yeah, I I not only intend to run, but I intend to win. Um, And I know that the more that I say it, the more I believe it, and the more I believe it, the more other people do. Um, And not just people who doubt, people who look and live like me, but people who share my experiences hear me say that, and it matters, right? Maybe not every little girl that's listening wants to be president, but I know that Declaring my ambition and declaring it loudly makes space for other people to do that, too. And so it's important.
0: Absolutely, it does. How else would you describe what you do in the world?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm a storyteller. My activism has always been rooted in my own story and my personal experience, right? From going to school board meetings and sharing that to change the sex education curriculum to going toe-to-toe with my senator when I was 16, based on my own identities, to going to a school like Columbia, right? Like all of this is looped back to my own personal story. I like to think that I'm a role model and a mentor for a lot of a lot of people, um, and that the way that I show up, particularly on social media, um, is an education in what is possible. That you know you can be a student and be a strategist. That you can be like struggling to remember to eat breakfast in the morning and be succeeding. And I I try to stand in that public platform as wholly as I possibly can, as authentically as I can, because I want to show other people that you can struggle and succeed at the same time and that you can kind of be both and that you don't have to make these choices between like being serious and being sexy and being the smart one or being, you know, all of these sort of things. You so, mean
0: you're showing an authentic representation of a woman's life because we're yeah, all of those things.
1: That's absolutely right. And that, you know, I've always said that to me, how I do, what I do is more important than what I do that in Although fact,
0: that's important too, what yeah. you do is important, but yes, how we move through life is also crucial.
1: Yeah. And I mean, just from my personal perspective that the work that I do for me wouldn't be worth doing if I wasn't, you know, shaking things up, if I wasn't going through the world making others uh, who hold power a little bit uncomfortable, right? If I wasn't making just a little bit more space for the people that come after me, that I really wouldn't be able to do this work and I wouldn't want to if I wasn't doing it in a way that was different or exciting.
0: I relate to you in that regard. It's, it's understanding that to create change, we have to push boundaries and we have to push people. And there is a level of being able to sit with people's discomfort. You have to be able to be okay with making people uncomfortable in order to do that. Right. Um, which brings me to, you know, again, when I was looking at video footage of you, I saw that incredible footage of you at 16 years old, Standing up against Senator Flake, um, challenging him on reproductive rights. Yeah. And I was floored by your confidence. And I wanted to know where that courage came from.
1: Yeah. I think back to that younger version of myself often. Um, and I think if her and I were to go toe to toe today, she would mm-hmm. eat me up. She was something else, she was fierce. And you know, so much of that advocacy stemmed from the personal, that it was my access to birth control that was on the line, right? This was my future, my body on the line. Um, in so many ways, it still is. And so it wasn't some theoretical political game for me, right, this was about, could I go on to college? Could I, could I control my body and my future? Um, and so for me, that passion and that confidence stemmed from the personal um but i also think back to you know again the power of storytelling that when i got up and i told my story and the next day went viral on social media uh that i got to be on even footing with the us senator and that that can't be understated when people who have looked who look and have lived like me have been intentionally excluded from these power power positions right from Places of decision making. And so to be able to utilize my story as an agent of change making, and then to see that reaction on social media democratize my access to this space into the public discourse was a huge confidence boost in so many ways. And it was kind of the thing I needed to continue being a storyteller.
0: To give some context for yeah. our listeners, you growing up struggled with being hidden homeless. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I would love for you to explain for people who don't know what that means. Sure,
1: One in 30 teens in the U S experience hidden homelessness. And it really just means not having a home of your own. It could mean living with friends or, you know, a guidance counselor, or for me, it was living with my partner and his family. And that was language that I didn't have, uh, until sophomore year of high school. Right. I didn't really know how to describe my experiences. And it was really helpful to be able to put that language to it and know that I wasn't alone. There were so many other young people out there struggling with that, right? When you think one in 30, um, that's just about one in every classroom. And that's not to say that hidden homelessness is distributed equally because it is not, but it is a helpful visual, right?
0: How old were you when you were living with your partner?
1: Um, I moved out of my mom's house when I was 15 years old. You know, there was issues of substance abuse that had just gotten out of hand. And I knew it was time for me in making decisions about my own safety, um, my own well-being to live elsewhere. And so I bounced around between friends' houses, you know, and then eventually landed at my boyfriend at the time in his family's home. Uh, and they welcomed me in like another child. And that was a really, really important part of my experience in high school.
0: It's interesting. I moved out of my home when I was 15 as well, for similar reasons to you and right. live with a boyfriend. And I wouldn't have had any way to live had I not have been able right. to live with him. But it's also put a like the fire into me of being able to on my own living so that I yes. wasn't reliant on staying in a crappy relationship with a guy just because I needed somewhere to live, which yeah. was the case for For a while there. So I I definitely related to this term, which I had never heard before. Right.
1: And, you know, I think that that's the case for so many young people out there, right? That they have these rich social networks of friends and support staff and significant others. And so homelessness for most youth doesn't actually look like being on the streets, right? They have people they can rely on, but that doesn't negate the experience of not having a home of your own and the kind of impact that that has. Um, on your access to resources or on your mental health or your physical health or your well-being. And you know, when I think about it, I think about it obviously in relation to reproductive health, right? And the kind of resources I had access to. And when I I was 16, I went to a Planned Parenthood and I had no money, I had no parents, I had no insurance, right? But through title 10 funding, I was able to receive birth control at no cost to me and walk away with the peace of mind that my body was my own and I was making decisions about it and that my circumstances wouldn't decide my future. And that funding, Title X funding, through which I received birth control was exactly what Jeff Flake earlier in that day had voted to strip away. So when we think about where that confidence and that passion comes from, once again, it was incredibly personal.
0: Yeah, do you think most advocacy comes from personal experience?
1: I think good advocacy does. Um, people always ask me where they should get started and I tell them to think about your own life. Yeah, exactly. Think, get personal. That's my best advice is to really think about how the news or what you're seeing in politics is intersecting with your own life. And then to use your personal story, think about how does my narrative or my experience, how can I share it? And then to bring your personal network along, right? to bring your friends, your family, your significant other, your neighbors into the room, because the people who care about you are gonna care about what you care about.
0: Yeah, very much so. So when you arrived at Columbia, you got a DM in your Instagram from Mina Harris, who I also adore. Yeah, And she was asking Mm -hmm. you to join her aunt Kamala Harris's presidential campaign. What was your response to getting that DM? How shocked were you?
1: Well, this was my sophomore year of college. So I had already done the fun freshman year, figured things out, right? I'm a first-generation college student, so the learning curve was heavy. But in my sophomore year, as I was unpacking my dorm, I actually got a DM from Mina Harris that was just a job description. It was, a, it was more like, here is an opening. Um, and so my initial response was saying, I have some friends who just graduated. Isn't that interesting?
0: Your first response was not "I'm applying." It was like, "Let me hook you up with some friends."
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that that's really at the core of this story, like the meaning of it to me as I look back on my life, was that absolutely I was going to put my friends' names up, right? Like, (laughs) I one assumed I wasn't qualified, assumed I was too young, and so you know I, I shoot back this DM saying I have some friends that I'd like to recommend that I think would be a good fit, and she comes back to me saying. I think you're a good fit. I think you should apply. And I just think that there's such a special relationship between women who do that, right? Women who bring your name up, who see your potential and push you to see it too. And in so many ways, that's what I aspire to be, right? I aspire to put my name or my friend's names in the room. And I know just how important it is because it's exactly how I landed a job on a presidential campaign at just 19 years old and became one of the youngest presidential campaign staffers in modern history.
0: That's no small thing. Let's just say that again: one of the youngest pre- presidential campaign staff in modern history.
1: Yeah, that's, that's exactly pretty right. major. It was, and you know, it was earth-shaking for me. And I have to admit that there were moments where I thought about not taking the job. And I got some very solid advice <laughs> from Why? Why did
0: you consider not taking the job? Yeah.
1: So this this is exactly is sort of the one of the most interesting parts of this story. Uh, like I said, I was unpacking that sophomore year dorm. I had committed to this school and this college experience. And like I said, I was first in my family to go to college. So first and foremost, I'm like, oh my God, I'm gonna have to drop out. Like, this is gonna be a mess. <laughs> um, you know, I have a lot of my own pride tangled up in this, but I also have family expectations. And let's not forget that at the time there were like 20 people running for Democratic nominee, right? Like this was not a sure thing by any means. Uh, I remember some of the barriers for me were that one, I had never been to Baltimore, the city they were asking me to move to. And by the time I moved there, I had still never been. My first day in Baltimore was the day I moved into my apartment. (laughs) I had never signed a lease on an apartment. I signed my first lease when I got there. And the position I was working in as influencer and surrogate strategist didn't exist before I got there either. So I was stepping into a new city, in a new job, and I felt very uncertain of myself.
0: Understandably.
1: Yeah. I spent most of my first day in the bathroom crying. Mm -hmm. Um, I have like these photos of me in the bathroom mirror like, oh no. Sounds about Uh, right. I I mean, terrifying. It was. Terrifying. But what
0: courage that you actually were like, I am feeling this terror, but I'm... I know that this is the right thing for me to do.
1: Yeah, and I actually, me and my coworkers, this is a kind of a funny um, behind the scenes story, but we all got tattoos of the word fearless, which was a campaign Mm. slogan. And mine is actually right here. And Kamala Harris wrote it for me. It's in her handwriting. Because for me, that moment was fearless. It was a moment where I set the logistics aside and I zoomed out. And I took control of my own story. And I said, I don't care what other people are going to think about this choice. I'm making it wholeheartedly. And I know it is the right thing to do. I know that my skills can make a difference. And I know that I support this woman who not only shares so many identities with me, right? As an Asian American, as a first generation American, as someone raised by a single mom, right? I saw myself represented in a way that I never had before. But I also knew that this was potentially the most important election of my lifetime, and that there was no sense in sitting it out.
0: What inside you indicated to you that this was the right choice? Because intellectually, you've just given me a bunch of great reasons, but I'm wondering how you knew I'm doing this.
1: Like I said, I got a piece of advice from from Mina Harris, which was to zoom out, that I was getting so caught up in the little things, like who was gonna be upset about it? Who wasn't gonna like my choices? How was I gonna pay for a rental car to move my stuff? Could I really afford an apartment, right? I was getting so caught up in the logistics of how this was gonna work, that I failed to zoom out and think about what this could mean for me and my story that this was literally the opportunity of a lifetime uh, and that I'm someone who has always made it work and that I would make it work this time. And I have to say that there was sort of a tipping point for me also. I was still attending classes, right? It was like the first week of classes when I made this decision. And I was sitting in (laughs) in my contemporary civilizations class, which is a required Columbia literature we're reading Plato and I'm just thinking, oh my God, what am I doing here? Like the most important presidential of my, presidential election of my lifetime is happening right now and literally every day matters. And I have the skills that could make a difference. And so it really was just a timeliness, right? That I knew that this was the time and that there would be no other time like it.
0: You said that you had always made it work. And one of the things I want to reflect is that I know for myself, some of the survival skills that I learned from my really um, unsettled childhood actually were really beneficial as I got older, because I too can like work anything out. It's like, no, no, I've, I have lived through some really difficult stuff. I will work this thing out and I will make it work. Same thing, right? So I'm wondering whether you found that some of your survival skills that you developed at growing up have helped you with your ambition and helped you to be fearless and helped you to have courage to know that you will, you will do what needs to happen here to make it work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it has, you know, I recognize that unlike a lot of my peers at Columbia, the tightrope that I walk has no net under it. And that could be scary, but I do it anyway. Uh, And I always kind of joke that like, I sometimes have to put myself in the same frame of mind as my peers, right? Like, what would these rich kids do? What decisions would they make when they're unencumbered by you know having to pay their mom's bills or worrying about uh, having a safety net and savings and building that by themselves, and so in a lot of ways, some of that was looking to the freedom that my peers were able to feel, and and being of the knowledge that I too am worthy of that freedom, uh, and that I've got it, I'll figure it out. I think another sort of survival skill that I learned that is has really Help shape my, my reality as it is now is that I grew up in a community where there was not enough, where scarcity was produced, right? Where the government kept things scarce. I lived in Section 8 housing and on food stamps and I was surrounded by other people who simply didn't have enough to get by. But one thing I learned being in a community like that is that we create enough, that when my family has food, when my family made dinner, we'd invite someone over, right? Or when my mom didn't have a car, the neighbors would drive me to school, or when my mom didn't have a job, she would babysit so someone else could go to work. that my community taught me about what it means to create enough, uh, to be creative in your generosity.
0: And to be and empathetic, and
1: resourceful.
0: Yeah, and to be empathetic, because what you just described is not happening every day on the regular and more affluent communities, it is just not.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's one really huge misconception about neighborhoods, like the one I grew up in, right? That what I see this scarcity producing is resilience, is community building, is relationships and flexible kinships and families, right? And I think that there's something really beautiful about that. And I also think that the world could use more leaders coming out of those perspectives, right? That we could use leaders like my mom who picks up food every week from the food bank to distribute to her neighbors, uh, who takes care of the stray cats in her neighborhood, right? Like people who genuinely care for the people around them. And that especially when our government doesn't show up for us, that like we show
0: up for us. And there's something so powerful about a community community that shows up for each other. And I, when I think about the, the community that you've been building online and how yeah. it looks like you've taken some of those principles and, and kind of instilled them into community building online, would that be fair to say?
1: That's absolutely right. When I moved from Arizona to New York City to pursue my education, I looked around and for the very first time, didn't feel like community was the people around me, right? the people who shared my experiences weren't the people who lived in the same dorm building or on my campus, but in fact were young women and femmes and non-binary folks that I was connecting with on social media. And so Gen Z Girl Gang, the organization that I founded out of my freshman year dorm, is really built on that principle that Gen Z has this superpower that is social media, the ability to connect with anyone, anywhere, anytime. And that that means we can redefine sisterhood and the practice of it, right? The practice of building power in our personal networks and mobilizing our relationships, not only to live better professional lives, but better personal lives too. And GGG, Gen Z Girl Gang at its core, really did stem from from that upbringing of of community and knowing that we could translate some of that into the digital space.
0: And what is... Can you give me some examples of some of the the work that um, Gen Z Girl Gang does?
1: Yeah, I'm so incredibly proud of the work that we do at Gen Z Girl Gang. We have a graduation summit coming up with Microsoft, which is so cool. We recognize that this pandemic has taken a huge toll on people our age, right? That If you came into this like me at 19 and are now 22, you've lost some of your prime, not only fun years, but networking, right? When you build your personal and professional network, and so many of us were called home to care for relatives or had to go and work jobs that maybe we wouldn't have worked otherwise, that took away from our education, taking time off of school, right? That there are so many untraditional paths Um, that young folks are taking right now. And so one thing we're doing in the present is this graduation summit. We're going to host workshops and panels on how to create a non-linear life plan and uh, embrace an untraditional career and also how to build a resume. We're going to have panels on the post-grad life crisis, right? What does it feel like to be pulled out of your community and have to find a new one? And how to demand and disrupt more in your workforce, right? If you are working somewhere that doesn't represent your values. We also do sort of programming day-to-day, which I think is incredibly special. We constantly are trying to think about how do we break Instagram? How do we break these social media platforms that are built on top-down follower relationships to create organic community? Um, And we do a lot of that via DMs and DM groups. And one story that like just, I feel like embodies the mission of Gen Z Girl Gang was at the height of the pandemic. When everyone was isolated, we created these wellness group chats with people who had never met each other before. who lived all around the world and they were just checking in on each other. Hey, how's everyone doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing all right. And they started to build these relationships. And one moment that really stands out to me that one of my facilitators shared with me was one young person talked about how, you know, they're not doing so great. They're actually really struggling to cover their rent right now. And someone else in that chat, who these two people had never previously known each other, was like, I just got my stimulus check. And to be honest, I don't need it. Can I help you cover your rent?
0: That's beautiful. And- that just doesn't happen. (laughs) Right? But I
1: think that that at its core shows us the power of relationships, right? that relationships can be activism, that community building is the work that makes our quality of life better. And that the only reason we don't see it that way is because it is often done by young women and femmes, right? That historically women have been the community builders, have been the caretakers, the nurturers, the connectors. And so something else at Gen Z Grogan that we do in terms of culture shifting is about saying community building is work.
0: It, and is, it is, yeah. Important
1: work, and it's about creating sustainable movements.
0: Hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, is it a nonprofit, or how do you how do you fund?
1: That's a great question. Um, I am paperwork adverse, and we have always just been this flexible group of friends, right? This got started, like I said, out of my freshman year dorm. We just made an Instagram page and went about it. And in so many ways, we still are this flexible organization responding to the needs of our community. And so one thing we do to sort of pull in resources is we do brand partnerships. Like I said, we partnered with Microsoft Store to bring this graduation summit to life. We partnered with Instagram to do a back to school survival summit. And we have a merch line, which the proceeds of which go to our impact work. So we raise funds, kind of like any other digital creator, I suppose. And I think that in its own way is interesting, right? When we consider the narrow limits of what is acceptable, right? LLCs and nonprofits, they really leave out a lot of these youth run and youth led organizations that are sort of informally built, kind of like ours.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I launched a company called Girl Gaze. Yeah, in 2016, and it was an Instagram account and the whole objective was to highlight the perspective of female trans non binary creatives, and it was highlighting their work photography directing illustration animation, and we have like 350,000 people in our community in our social media community but again we could only survive by doing brand partnerships yeah. and then you have to if you have a life outside of doing that which because you have because you have to earn a living then you have to hire someone to do the brand partnerships then you need money and it's like you're right there is a, a structure that confines and limits organizations that are, are built from a mission based position yeah. and so you can cannot actually do as much as you need to do and as much as you probably could be capable of doing without legitimizing your business. And so yeah. one of these LLCs or, you know, whatever the, you know, whatever, I, the, the, 1C3, yeah, whatever, whatever
1: the, the acronym is, yeah.
0: you, you, you have to do that in mm-hmm. order to grow. But once you do that, it, it, it basically limits your ability to be a mission-based company. Yeah. And it is really problematic. We need an update on, on these structures for sure.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the other aspect about Gen Z Girl Gang is that all of our leaders are representative of our community, right? Yes. Two of them are graduating, one the day before our graduation summit and the other the day after, right? Most the best all of people to speak to
0: that event, best people to speak to that yeah. event are the people who are living it.
1: But they're also the busiest, right? Like they're actively trying to graduate. They have family coming into town and those sorts of things. And so I also think when we think about who does this work, right? We have to think about that red tape that's put up by paperwork and having to create a nonprofit or an LLC. And who has access to those kinds and of And by the way, who has like-
0: the money as well? Exactly. Because it costs money to be able it to sure do that. Does.
1: And who has the time and who has the capacity, right? Yes. Is it the people who are most affected, who are the most representative of their community? And the answer is no, right? That the people who are the most representative of these communities often are also the ones that have the least access to creating and sustaining these organizations. And so the other thing that I, I'm really proud of at Gen Z crow gang is that we've created a work culture that really allows people to take a step back when they need to, to say what that. What does that know, look like? Yeah. I mean, it looks like sometimes we're not as active, right? Sometimes there are weeks where nothing gets posted, but we know that this is not a sprint. It's not a marathon. It's a relay race that we pass oh, the baton yeah. off to each other. Um, And that we're a team and that our community will understand and the world will keep spinning if we need a break.
0: It will. And we've
1: been around for three years now. So I have to say, I think it's working. And I'm incredibly proud of how the young women and non-binary folks on our team have succeeded not only in their professional life at Gen Z Girl Gang, but outside of it and in their personal lives. The way that is yeah,
0: success. That is success, isn't it? You can't be succeeding in one area but failing in another because then it's not succeeding. It's not working. If you're working your ass off yeah. and your mental health is suffering to the point where you can't get out of bed, that's not working. So right. if you have an ecosystem that is supportive of all aspects of your life, that is a success.
1: Yes, yes, and I think that that once again to the saying that I used earlier, when I think of my my theory of leadership, it's once again that what we do is not as important to me as how we do it, right? That if we're pumping out campaign after campaign, but my girls are burnt out and sad and they're not doing well, then why are we doing this, right? If they are not living lives that model the lives they want to create for others, right? If they don't feel free, how are they going to get other people free? If they don't feel empowered, how are they going to empower other people? You can't,
0: you you can't can't, transmit something you don't have.
1: Exactly. And so I really do believe as a leader that, I focus in on, on our how and innovating that because we recognize that this definition of success that we've been inherited is created by old, rich white men, right? Whose success is predicated on oppression and keeping other people down, and that we will never become successful that way, right? That our success is about pulling each other up.
0: Yeah, and creating an ecosystem that is reimagined in a way that actually works for us.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: So who are some of the voices that inspire you?
1: (sighs) Who are some of the voices that inspire me? I think I feel my most inspired when I'm around my mentees. At Columbia, I have two younger girls who connected with me either through social media and the other through a program for low-income students. And I just feel so incredibly inspired when I see my younger self in them in so many ways and I get to help them out or I get to support them or cheer them on, right? Because I know that that sort of intergenerational connection, right? That what someone else did for me, when someone else offered to give me a ride to a storytelling training or, you know, helped me find enough money to meet rent, right? But like those investments in me, I get to reinvest in others and that they will then go on to reinvest in people after them. And I think I feel incredibly inspired when I see them winning, when I see them doing great things and when I see them taking up leadership uh, in their communities on and off campus, because I know that it's sort of the gift that keeps on giving, right? That they're gonna just keep showing up for others so that they can do the same. So they, they are some of my biggest inspirations.
0: Yeah, it's being of service, isn't it? And understanding the immense value that is in that for, for all of us, really.
1: Yeah, totally. I also think, you know, there are so many voices that don't sort of make it into the headlines. Most don't.
0: Most yeah, don't. Most don't,
1: right? And I think back to teachers who gave me really good advice or who made me feel big and didn't shrink me. And I think about how inspiring the work that they do every day with young people is. I think about nonprofits in my hometown, like Youth on Their Own, who invested in me, gave me a monthly stipend to make sure that I could be a normal teenager, take some time off of work, who provided me with food and clothing from, the, from their resources. And the people that do that work every day are incredibly inspiring to me. So yeah, I think, I think a lot about the people, especially in my hometown, who invested in me. And I draw a lot of inspiration from the work that they do and continue to do.
0: As we are recording this, we are waiting to hear if the leaked Supreme Court decision that would overturn Roe v. Wade is going to go into effect. What were your immediate thoughts when you saw that news?
1: (sighs) I mean, this sounds maybe a little entitled, but I'm just like, this shit isn't fair. Like, this isn't fair. Like, when you're in your 20s, I feel like that is peak, like, fairness, like you can just see when things don't feel fair. And this is one of those moments where I zoom out and I think, how did we even get here? And the answer is that the majority of the Supreme Court justices were appointed by presidents who didn't win the popular vote. And then that many of those were confirmed by a Senate that did not by number represent the majority of Americans. And so I know that this is what majority rule looks like. This is not democracy. And that young people will bear the brunt of this decision. Even though, even though all of the presidents who appointed these Supreme Court justices, I had no say in electing. I didn't get to vote in these elections, right? And yet still for their lifetime appointments, I'll be the one who has to deal with their decisions. That when I step up to run for president, I'll probably still see Amy Coney Barrett on the bench when my children are making reproductive decisions. She'll probably still be there. And that is infuriating. And so one, I felt a deep sense of unfairness. Two, I feel a deep sense of worry for young women um, and and people of color and low-income people all across this country, because I know that they stand to be the most affected, right? That- Mm -hmm. Rich women will always have the resources, will always find a way to gain access uh, to this care. And so as I look forward, I know that the path forward is to one, center the leadership of people for whom this has always already been a reality, right? Uh, People in Texas who have already been denied their right to abortion by blocking access, right? Who for years have contended with not having access to abortion, that we should be looking to them for their leadership in this moment. And that on top of that, that we know that when our electeds, when our government officials deny us our rights, that our rights are not derived from them, that we will continue to show up for us. We will manage our own abortions, right? We will continue to to create mutual aid funds, right? will create travel funds. um, And so that we know in this moment, the responsibility has shifted to us um, and that it's our job to, to organize.
0: Yeah. It's the only option because we can't, abortion cannot be banned. Safe abortion is what is getting banned here. Right. And that's ultimately the, the, you know, the concern is how many, how many women of color who are disproportionately going to be affected, as you said, yeah. are going to be seeking unsafe abortions and will, will be her- horrendously affected.
1: Yeah. And you know, the alternative to that is that medication abortion is incredibly effective and safe. And I think that that is really the direction that we're headed, right. It's about organizing. How do we, how do we get access Uh, How do we increase access? How do we bring down barriers? How do we, as members of our communities, serve as resources, right? To make sure that we're getting trained in how to help people manage their own abortions. And how do we secure this access to this healthcare, whether it's included in our rights given by the government or not? Um, And I think that that really is the, the way forward, is not pouring into litigation or legislation but really investing in community um, and investing in these networks, like we said, of care to really make sure that those most affected get these, get access to abortion regardless of, of the outcome of the Supreme Court.
0: And there are, there are many incredible funds that people can donate That's to right. that will provide, as you said, travel funds, yep. abortion funds, and it's a, it's a terrifying time. I mean, I was so shocked. Not much shocks me, but I was shocked. And I don't know why I should be, because this this discussion has been going on for yeah. a long time. We kind of knew it was coming, but when it actually came, it was like, wow, I cannot believe that this is happening. Yeah. And yet there's, there's, a, there's a, a feeling of powerlessness um, that I know so many people are feeling right now. And, yeah. and it's it's important that we do talk about what we can do and to stay in solution as much as possible.
1: That's absolutely right. And you know, just yesterday I was on a brainstorming call with other leaders in this space, and we were asking, like, what are the questions that people are gonna have? Right? What are people feeling? And I think a lot of people are feeling exactly that. How did we get here? How could this happen? What can I possibly do about it? Right. And you're absolutely right. Some of the biggest things people can do are donate to abortion funds, look into trainings on how to be a buddy to help people self-manage abortions, look into Plan C um, and medication abortion, share good information. And remember that as it stands right now, the moment we're recording, abortion is legal in all 50 states. And that we have science and public opinion on our side and that we are on the right side of history. And so that it is those mother effers <laughs> that are fighting the uphill battle, not us. They're the ones fighting the uphill battle. They're the ones clinging to their last bit of power. And they're, they're intimidated because they see young people, young women like me coming. This is about limiting our, our access to their power. Um, and it in every way shows that they are scared. But we, we have to remember and recenter ourselves that we are on the right side of history and that they are the ones fighting the uphill battle.
0: Deja, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. I have really enjoyed my time with you and you're just such a trailblazer and I'm really excited to, to keep, you know, watching you and learning from you and, and watching where you go and how, and how you do it. Thank you. I appreciate that. VS Voices is part of Victoria's Secret's ongoing commitment to become one of the world's leading advocates for women. To deliver on that promise together, we have created the Voices platform to do just that. Amplify the voices, represent the views, and learn from the unique perspectives of women from every background. Sharing stories bring us closer together, and it's how we move forward. Open up dialogue and raise the game.